Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. Um, I guess uh, she's over in England. Uh, her name is Irina Shalisheva. Uh, she's a postdoctoral researcher, medical bioinformatician, uh, part of the Oxford Vaccine Group. And um, she does what's called bioinformatics. I'm going to have her define that. And uh, a lot of her work uh, goes towards uh, vaccine research and, and understanding using next generation sequencing, which will also define um, you know, how to find vaccines maybe faster and, and more efficacious ones. So, Irina, thanks for coming. How are you doing? Thanks for having me. That's great, Richard. I'm looking forward to our podcast. Yeah. Okay, so just to start, two definitions. What is bioinformatics? And then I want to talk about next-gen sequencing. What does that mean? Okay, so basically the bioinformatic is a kind of a novel part of the science, which is important to be defined as a research because many people think that bioinformatics is a service. So you know that uh, these people were working with a, a big data, uh, which is enormous amount of big data, which is coming uh, from the various uh, inputs, which are currently available for all the various of the biological and the chemical science. One of them is the next generation sequencing technology. So this is the reason why the bioinformatics as a science has been established in the middle of the previous century or somewhere a little bit later on. So the bioinformaticians are somewhere in the middle of the programmers, let's say. So these are the data scientists. However, they have a deep knowledge of the biology or the underlying mechanisms like chemistry or medicine and so on. Okay, and then, um, you know, I know a little bit about genetic sequencing. Maybe the public's heard of it. You, know, you sequence your genes, the Human Genome Project. What is next generation sequencing? What can it look at? So basically, the next generation sequencing is a quite a novel technology. I mean, we still keep telling that it's novel because there are a huge amount of virus technologies which are currently available. And the most important highlight probably here that the next generation sequencing is a technology which allows to sequence a lot of bases at the same moment. So it's highly parallel technology. So basically, uh, of course, Everyone have heard about the genome sequencing, which is the most probably basic one, which has been established by Sanger in the previous century. However, nowadays, uh, except uh, that one, which is genomic sequencing, which is based on the whole genome sequencing, so we sequence the DNA. Uh, we also can sequence the transcriptome of the cell, which is an RNA, so the uh, basically the actual information which is contained there except the uh, just a stable one, which is DNA, we can also look at the changes which are happening, which is a transcriptome. And we can also look at the translatome. So following up from the main uh, dogma of the molecular biology, we have the uh, translation and transcription. So from the DNA, we go to the RNA and we go to the protein. So basically, mm. currently, we can uh, look at the uh, genomic sequence 
which is a DNA. We can look at the RNA as a transcriptome, and we can also look at mm -hmm. the translatome. So basically what is currently translated in the cell. So some of the sequencing technologies allow to look at that as well, which is also called like ribosome profiling, another technique which is available. So you could also do what's called proteomics, look at the proteins created, and then I guess there's metabolomics too, where uh, the metabolites yeah. created by cells can be observed, right? So this is kind of a downstream mechanism, yeah, but the basic uh, sequencing technologies, which we are mostly concentrated on, I would say it's uh, for the dynamic part, it's uh, transcriptome and translatome. And for the most stable part is obviously DNA. So the proteomics, it's a little bit slightly different. It can be integrated in the pipelines, but it's already not a sequencing. It's mass spectrometry and other techniques, which we are uh, a little bit distinguishing between. Okay. So um, I see in your bio that you're working on vaccine development. So how would this next generation sequencing play into, um, you know, fast tracking vaccines or, you know, finding them earlier, make, finding more efficacious ones? Yeah, it's a very important question, actually, because most of the people are thinking that uh, basically the vaccine development and the testing of the vaccine is concentrated on the clinical trials, where the main idea is to make it quicker and to check the safety and to check the immunogenicity of the vaccine, obviously. And the next generation sequencing is a technique which is still mostly kind of uh, time consuming. So compared to the uh, most of the other tests which can be performed in clinic, you need an additional technology which is really costly and uh, which will take you quite some time compared to the other one. So it may be several weeks until you get some results. However, we are still in this uh, point where we are fighting to say that the next generation sequencing is really important in order to prove the safety and genesty and uh, to show that the vaccines are really working as we want. Uh, and I will give you some examples, if you wish, which we yes, are able to see unless we do the sequencing. So if we just stay with a typical clinical test, which we are performing uh, like on a daily basis and which are available in hours compared to the sequencing, which we have to wait for, uh, we are able to identify additional insights to that using the sequencing. For instance, uh, if we use the genomic sequencing, we are able to detect the mutations or specific uh, SNPs, they call it. So this is single nucleotide polymorphisms, which uh, would potentially lead to the different reactions uh, from the human organism uh, to the uh, viruses or pathogens, which we have, as well as for the vaccines. Also, it has been shown widely that uh, different uh, people react differently to the vaccines based on various of the factors. And some of these factors can be checked using the genome sequencing beside the mutations. There is a variability by the race, age, and gender, which are quite uh, straightforward. However, there are also uh, the different HLA types, which you probably heard of. So, which is a yeah, uh, antigens. Those are, uh, I guess, expressed on the membranes of cells? Uh, yeah, that's true. So this is a major histocompatibility complex. And the HLA uh, genes which, ex, uh, which are encoding this major histocompatibility complex are one of the most various genes which uh, have currently around 25 or 26,000 of variations known. And wow. you can imagine that these genes can basically be affecting the reaction to the vaccine or to the virus. And if we know that within particular population, some of these HLA types are more common 
And we probe this reaction, for example, within England and UK, and we make a trial on the people who are living here, and they have a limited amount of these HLAs. And after that, we try to implement this vaccine in another country, somewhere, for example, in Africa or in India, where the people have another variability of this HLA. Uh, you can resolve that the vaccine efficiency would be decreased or increased depends on that. And this is one of the very crucial parts uh, of uh, a trial, which we cannot prove just by checking the race or the age of the people. And How, this um, can be improved on the... When you, when you profile someone's uh, you know, HLA, what cell types do you use? Is it different across cell types? And you know, how many cells need to be looked at in order to profile it? Uh, I would say that most of the sequencing can be performed on the whole blood. So there is nothing specifically needed. So basically all the HLA types are present, so they can be extracted successfully once you perform the sequencing. And the advantage of having a sequencing, of course, there are other um, approaches where you can check the HLA, but sequencing would allow you to see the mutations. It would allow you to see the HLA. It would allow you also to see the expression in the case if you perform the RNA sequencing, so say transcriptome sequencing, to see whether some of specific uh, genes or some of specific pathways are activated in one group of individuals, but not in another. So to say that they respond differently to the vaccine for any unknown reason which is happening actually. So not everybody has the same level of protection. And sometimes we have no clear idea just uh, looking at the top of this hill, let's say. That's why we have yeah, to go deeper to distinguish between them because there are some underlying mechanisms which could be revealed during the sequencing. What's, um, huh. what, what are, so people can react very, very differently to vaccines? Uh, yeah, that's true. I mean, there is, uh, there is a variability. That's the reason why, for example, if we go for a trial, we have a, first of all, first phase where we just check the safety of the vaccine. And after that, we have a second phase where we believe that we have enough variability of the people from the various groups of people. So different age, different race in the good case, uh, different uh, living conditions, probably, in order to prove the efficiency on the huge, uh, let's say, population in order to afterwards uh, show that this can be uh, implemented in various countries and various populations. However, we are still limited by this. For example, if we would use our vaccine only within the UK, our trial would be eligible for that. However, if we would like to spread it around the world, we would need the trials to be implemented in the different countries in order to see how it will work with different people. So yes, uh, the efficiency can be different between the different races and not only the races and the ages. It's much more complicated, let's say, because of the variability of the multiple factors. Well, since there are many factors, have, has science at least identified which factors appear to be, you know, have the most impact in how someone will react to a vaccine? Uh, I would say uh, so far the clearly like the, the the clear ways to distinguish obviously is the age because uh, you know that the innate uh, innate immune system is different from those from the adults so obviously it's not clearly the same how kids are reacting compared to the adults and the older adults for example uh, over 70 75 would also react differently because the immune system is already uh, not hyper reacting to this so it's a little bit reduced well, in but what, what what changes with age age like if you if you were to just you know do a practice run essentially and 
look at all these factors that you normally consider for vaccines, but just in the context of age, has that been done? And what's been observed? Like what useful information has come out of it? Uh, I would say that the reason why all the trials are still taking place in the various age groups, because we cannot predict it clearly, because some of the systems can be overreacting. And this is not a very, let's say, clear correlation that we would say that kids are always reacting better, you know. That's why, for example, once we have a vaccine schedule, we always have the different age uh, where some kind of immunization is supposed to be taken by kids. So it has to be 5-H or 7-H or some of the vaccines have to be repeated or boosted at particular age. And these uh, schedules which we currently have, and it's worldwide, uh, I think, in America and uh, as well as in Europe, it's uh, quite common that the vaccinations are taken at a particular age. And this has been defined for each particular vaccine. So we cannot say that, for example, it's uh, worldwide better and common that uh, all the vaccines are supposed to be given at earlier age and, you know, they will be more efficient compared to the older adults. It's not a clear correlation. So it's very much dependent. But again, if, if you know, if, if you had to say, can can you even tell which factors are the most impactful? If if you talk about like, so age is one, that seems to be a very impactful one. You know, when you're very old or very young, yeah, um, okay. beyond age, what what other what other factors are very important? Is like HLA profile extremely important or not really? You know, if you if you look at a family of people, do they tend to have very similar HLA profiles, uh-huh. and therefore maybe you can exclude that? Uh, yeah, they do. Uh, that's one of the reasons why there's some uh, population-wise HLA profiles. So, for example, in England, there would be one, and in other countries, they would be different because uh, most of the people are making family between each other within one country, and less of them are traveling abroad. So, for example, for some of the small populations which are living in a close community, the HLA vari- variability would be very low because they're basically, you know, building the community between each other and not very frequently uh, traveling or going abroad to build a family. So uh, I would say that uh, it's under the investigation. Partly it's one of my uh, actually projects which I am working on to see how much dependency HLA profile makes to that. And I do believe that it is one of the important factors. But since the variability is really high, it's uh, easier to check that on a smaller populations uh, very isolated populations, which are still common worldwide, uh, to see whether it would be uh, of a higher importance. Because having a higher variability, living in an open community, we can't really test everyone for the HLA and perform the sequencing on that massive scale to say something on that. But I do believe that this is an important factor as well. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You mentioned um, using that some people will use literally different molecular pathways to respond to a vaccine. Can you maybe give an example or two of that? And, you know, are there like a few main pathways that pretty much everyone will use? Or is there a tremendous variability in, in you know, use of molecular pathways? Uh, I would say it's not that straightforward. Basically, for the pathways, what I'm talking about is that once we're performing the transcriptome sequencing, so what we're doing is we're extracting the RNA, and uh, once we're looking at the RNA, we're checking the gene expression profile, which is obviously changing after the vaccination. And in the case, if we're performing a clinical trial, we typically have a vaccination date, and after that, we have some following-up visits from the same participant who has been vaccinated, 
let's say on day zero. After that, we are asking him to come again to the clinic at day seven. And in the case, if there is already a treatment from the um, the vaccine which we are testing, for example, we've been testing the uh, typhoid vaccines, the vaccines against the typhoid, and there is a treatment against it. So we were able to challenge the people with typhoid to see whether the vaccine is really efficient and how the organism will respond to the typhoid in the case if it has a vaccine. And then we had another following up visit to see what is the profile and how it changes from the day zero once we got the vaccine and after that to the challenge time and after that some days afterwards, for example, day seven, once there is a huge immune reaction is going on and after that once he is recovered, for example, at day 28. And uh, this is one of the reasons why we do that to see uh, basically how the reaction is changing for those people who've got the vaccine or for those people who've got, for example, less lower dose of the vaccine. So this is one of the part of the study, how we can see whether the uh, lower amount of uh, vaccine which is given is still efficient enough in order to people not to produce uh, the response to the challenge. Hmm. Okay. Um, have, have you been able to classify negative reactions to vaccines? And if so, what, what does that look like on a you know, molecular level or cellular level? Uh, so what do you mean by negative reactions? So that means that uh, the organism doesn't respond enough. So there is no enough... Uh, well, I mean, uh, you know, either a lack of response or uh, the person gets sick, you know, and the vaccine not only doesn't help them, but it makes them sick in some way. Uh, I mean, obviously, some of the live vaccines, let's say, they can make you kind of sick. I mean, if you are talking about the feeling sick at the beginning once you are vaccinated, this is obviously a normal immune reaction, which is supposed to be gone in uh, 24 or 48 hours. But if you are getting really sick, this is a kind of overreaction, which is not very typical. However, uh, the idea that once you are having a challenge, for example, if you've got a vaccine and you survived it well, and after that you've got a challenge. So, for example, in the case of typhoid, since we've been working with it, you just drink the typhoid. So you've got the salmonella tiffy and you drink it. And some of the people who've got the vaccine before, they will never get sick. And some of the others would get sick. And that's still real. So some of the people don't get enough protection having the same amount of vaccine and the same time points compared to the previous ones. And uh, here we're talking about the more individual reactions because if you imagine two individuals and if you yeah. give them both typhoid and they don't have a va uh, vaccine before, so they were not vaccinated, there is still a chance that one of them will never get sick. Even if you will treat him similar to another one, he will just never get sick. His uh, natural immunity will protect him. So he would probably even didn't need this vaccine. So there are basically four types of people at the end. So some of them got the vaccine and they needed it and it helped them. Some of them got the vaccine, it didn't help them. Unfortunately, they got sick. But some of them never had a vaccine, but they never got sick even so we challenged them and tried to make them sick, but they never got. So this is kind of an important part of what we try to check with sequencing, how the organism actually responds, why some of the particular T cells, for example, which we can also check with sequencing, which I haven't talked before, uh, why some of the uh, T cells have been produced by one organism in order to protect him from, uh, from it. And for another guy, it can be not produced at all. 
So this is one of the abilities of sequencing to have a look what are the differences between those individuals who haven't reacted to the vaccine compared to those who have. And so, you know, when I, when I hear in the news that, you know, it takes years to make vaccines and some, you know, for certain conditions, there hasn't ever been a vaccine and it's been, you know, 20 years, 30 years, 40 years. Like what, why is there difficulty in, why is there such difficulty in producing vaccines? What are some of the challenges? Is it just that, you know, vaccines just tend not to be efficacious enough or is it that they're actually harmful? Uh, well, you know, what's the, like, when a vaccine doesn't work, how does it not work predominantly? I would say the, it's, it's like a very tricky question, I would say, uh, because there are many possibilities. First of all, uh, what is the way to produce the vaccine? For example, if you have a virus, we can make a viral vector. I think you've heard about the various approaches of how to produce the vaccine, especially nowadays since we're in the middle of pandemic and uh, you can produce RNA vaccine, you can produce DNA vaccine, you can try to produce a new vaccine based on the previous vaccine which has been produced before. So this is a tricky question on the first part, but once you have something already in hand, there are other questions which are coming. And uh, I would say that the uh, major uh, difficulty is not just to have an idea in hand and just to produce it, but just uh, to verify that it's safe and immunogenic. And for some of the viruses, it's unfortunately that they're still mutating quicker than we are able to cover them, if you know what I mean. That's one of the reasons why you need uh, the regular immunizations for some of them, because they're mutating, for example, every season, luckily, and hopefully it's not going to be the case with the SARS-CoV-2, but we don't know yet. Okay. Um, so just don't want to be one step behind that. And for some of the things like simple flu or something, it's not that simple. It's like quite tricky if they're yeah. one step ahead from us. So it's it's not necessarily that the uh, the person will, like with flu, you know, obviously they've made vaccines and I, you know, I would guess that they're efficacious. Um, so there, it, it sounds like it's a matter of the flu uh, genetics changing enough so that the next season, um, whatever antibodies we've created, whatever, uh, you know, whatever defenses we've had against the flu no longer work because of the changes. Yeah, that's the problem that's the case, but it uh, highly depends uh, on the pathogen. I mean, not all of the viruses are able to uh, create the mutation so quickly. And that's one of the reasons why we need the sequencing also for these people, because we also need to sequence the viruses. So we need to be a little bit one step ahead in order to protect before it comes. Uh, But uh, yes, this is one of the major issues, I would say. But there are technologies currently, for example, there is a... Another sequencing, which is even a third generation sequencing, not even the next generation sequencing, uh, which is called Oxford Nanopore technology. I don't know whether you've heard about this one. Yeah. It's very novel one. Yeah, it's, uh, it allows to sequence very fast, I would say, like just to, from the device, which is on, on the size of less than your phone, and you can sequence the virus like in minutes. So basically, these kind of devices, probably if they would be spread worldwide, it would allow us to react quicker in the case if all of the mutations and the viruses would be, have, um, let's say, in one database, in the case if they would be uh, somehow detected and if they would be um, 
fulfilled. So in the case if we would be having all of them in one place, probably there would be a better option for us to react quicker to that. And the, well, the Oxford nanopores, are they known for high, three, high throughput, but not very long sequences? Or like what's their strength versus like Illuma or, you know, uh, back bioscience? I mean... I mean uh, from the practical point of view, they are quick. I mean, basically, like in hours, you can get a whole uh, genome of a virus or you can get whatever, basically, in hours. And another thing, uh, which is the advantage, probably, is uh, they, they are known for their extremely long reads. That's true, compared to the Illumina, which is mostly for the short uh, read sequencing. And uh, probably uh, the disadvantage of it is that uh, the accuracy is still not that high compared to the classical technologies, for example, if we're going to talk about Illumina. So, however, comparing the weeks of processing time for the Illumina sequencing to the hours from the nanopore, I would say that the future is still going to be to that direction. Okay, very good. I don't know if you can comment much on SARS-CoV-2, but um, I don't know, does it, does it, at first glance, does it appear to be a very difficult... Uh, you know, a virus to, to deal with in terms of, uh, you know, understanding its mechanisms or I know there's no vaccine that's, that's gone all the way yet, but again, just at first glance, does it appear to be a very difficult pathogen to work with or does it, you know, I know it's a general statement, but what's like your general feeling from having worked with it a bit? Uh, I would say from our perspective, as we already have been seen, there are the coronaviruses previously and uh, you wouldn't be surprised that many of the people have been already infected with uh, other coronaviruses. So this is a, not a first coronavirus which is coming to our world. So it's not a very surprising pathogen. I mean, of course, obviously, it has been mutated quite uh, quite far from the other ones. However, there is still an analogies which uh, allow us to go on since there were already the MERS and there were SARS. You've probably heard of both of them already mm-hmm. because Very they're quite, yeah. quite well known already. Yeah. And as I would say this is an advantage because we have something to work with. And uh, hopefully if it's going to be the same direction, then we would have a chance to find that one. Okay. What's the, what do you think is going to, uh, in the next, I don't know, six months or a year, do you sense that there will be you know, a breakthrough on a vaccine for SARS-CoV-2? Or does it seem like there's still like a, ro- a long road ahead? Any sense of that? Uh, I would say from our perspective, obviously, since we're working with it, we are doing our best to deliver it as quick as possible. And mm. I know that along with other many other, I, I would not name someone because, you know, the multiple trials which are going on across the world. And right. I believe that uh, this is uh, uh, probably the first pandemic in the last century or like this century, like. I would say even these two centers, uh, which allowed all the um, all the scientific institution to work together and along with each other instead of just uh, uh, let's say fighting for the first place. Now the main idea is just to protect the health, and I really like it because previously it's been always a fight for like let's say the publications, the impact factors, and many other things. I mean, they still are, but uh, the, I, I still believe that the kind of, you know, new motivation for the people to work on that, because we've all been into this pandemic and we've all been to this lockdown, and doesn't matter who actually wins in the end of the day, or who actually developed that one vaccine, it's still going to work and people still want to re- return to the normal life. 
Yeah, hopefully, yeah. Well, very good. Irina, what, what's the best way for people to learn more about your work and bioinformatics in general? The best way? Yeah. Uh, I, w- I would say, I mean, for me, it was a trans- transition. And I would say that if you would like uh, to do bioinformatics, I would suggest you to do some basic trainings first. I've got to know some bioinformaticians which had only the bioinformatic trainings. And it's a little bit, uh, you know, kind of a narrow thing. And if you would like to do bioinformatics, it's much better if you look wider, if you try, because it's a di- an uh, interdisciplinary field. So basically, you need a knowledge from biology, you need a knowledge from chemistry, you need something from medicine, uh, unless you just do the programming, but then you just not a scientist, you provide a service, you don't understand what are you doing, right? Mm, mm, and uh, for that, uh, from my perspective, I would say first, just try to learn something like a basic science, like the basic knowledge, and after that, on top of that, just to learn how to program. And then it's going to be bioinformatics. That's how I did it. Okay. Well, very good. Irina, again, I know it's late where you are. Thanks for staying up. And I appreciate you doing this podcast. Thank you very much. Thank you, Richard. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.